Let's turn to Ezra. Well, yeah, I guess, whatever. <laughs> Ezra, we're going to do Ezra and Nehemiah tonight, and the next week we will finish up with First and Second Chronicles, and then we will be all done. We made our way through the Old Testament in less than a year, half a year, actually. Then you'll know everything you'll need to know, or less than, less than that, even. So, All right, let's open in prayer. Father, we give you praise. Uh, for the way that you have uh, so recorded your word for us. You've preserved it. Uh, We have these accounts of your faithfulness. Uh, You've revealed yourself uh, to the nation of Israel. And then now we, as we thought about this morning, uh, have been entrusted with the oracles of God. And what a privilege that is. And so help us now to uh, study these historical accounts of Ezra and Nehemiah and to again see your hand and your faithfulness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's see. We didn't meet last week. Last time we met, it was Daniel and Esther we looked at. And remember, we're in the last half of the, the writings. And so we've returned to the narrative portion of the nation of Israel's history. Again, that key defining moment for them. First of all, the exodus. And then the other big one is the exodus from the land in the exile. And now we have returned to the, the stories after the exile. So Daniel and Esther, and now Ezra and Nehemiah. And Ezra and Nehemiah uh, are, are showing us the return back to the land. Whereas Daniel and Esther were both right outside of the land. Daniel in Babylon, Esther in Persia. Well, now Ezra and Nehemiah are going back to, to the land of promise. Okay? Now, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are really one book dealing with the same subject. Uh, the Hebrew Bible combines them into one book. Uh, it wasn't until later times that it was, that it was divided into to two. Um, the book covers this, uh, two, well, really three different time periods during the return. Uh, and, and each book has different emphases in a way. Ezra, we could say, has maybe two emphases, uh, whereas Nehemiah has one, kind of, two. I guess it depends on how you, how you think about it. 10 or 12, however many chapters, right? You could, you could do that. But the, the overall landscape of the books is very, very similar. One of restoration, one of um, a reestablishment of, of obedience to the law and building projects that are, are related to that as well, okay? And so there's a reason that, that ancient Judaism combined these books together uh, because they're very similar in tone, um, and it's also assumed that both Ezra and Nehemiah wrote most of their respective books. Uh, Ezra was Ezra is uh, probably one who compiled a lot of the Old Testament that we have in the form that it is today. He probably had a major major role in that. Okay, so Ezra and Nehemiah conclude now the history of the nation of Israel in our Old Testaments. Right after this point, we have that 400 years of silence. So if you think Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi are kind of the end. Malachi is ministering, well, as we'll see in this, in this time of uh, before Ezra arrives on the scene. Okay, but then there, of course, that 400 years between this period and when Jesus comes, or when John the Baptist comes on the scene, right? And this is the, the period, the, the silent years, where you have like the events like the Maccabeans and things like that, which is interesting history all in, in and of its own, but we don't have any of that recorded for us, okay? The other thing that's interesting is that, so in our Bibles, we place... 
First and Second Kings, and then we have First and Second Chronicles. And if you've ever read through your Bible like chrono- like that way, you're like, wait a minute, this seems to be repeating the same story. Why is that? Well, that's really not a very helpful thing because remember when we looked at First and Second Kings, it recounted all the history of the kings of Israel and of Judah. Well, when we get to Chronicles, you'll see it only recounts the history of the kings of of Judah not Israel, right? And has a different thrust to it. So there's a reason that in the Jewish Bible, it's placed all the way at the end. It's the very last book, okay? And what's also interesting is that Ezra and Nehemiah come before that, but yet the story they're telling is after First and Second Chronicles. So if you look just at the end of Second Chronicles, you'll see the last portion is the proclamation of Cyrus, well, that's right where Ezra begins. So it logically, in our Bibles, makes sense to go right next to Ezra. But in the Jewish Bible, you're reading Ezra and Nehemiah, and then you go back in time. Well, why is that? Well, it's, I think, because as we'll see next week, the Chronicles is pointing us all forward to the Davidic king, right? And it's all about the temple and about what the kings of Israel did uh, to further worship in the temple, things like that. So we'll get to that, that next week. But it is an interesting how it's laid out that even uh, the story that takes place after First and Second Chronicles is placed in front because, again, the hope is always found in the Davidic king, okay? Um, in relationship to the other prophets that we've already read uh, or studied, especially in the minor prophets, Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, those are the three post-exilic prophets that would be ministering during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Specifically, we'll see uh, in, in Ezra, Haggai and Zechariah's ministry encouraging the people to continue the work of building the temple. Uh, and so we'll reference that in a little bit. All right, I put in your notes just kind of a, chrono- a chronology of the book of Ezra. I think the, the time span is uh, from when they return to the land, 537 to 433. Was it about 100 years, right, that, that the, the time span of the, of the book takes place, a little, little over that. Uh, of course, Ezra and Nehemiah weren't alive for the whole time. We'll kind of walk through that in just a minute. Okay, the purpose of the book is this. I think I also put this in your notes. It is this. Ezra and Nehemiah, taken together, show the faithfulness of God to restore his people and that the restoration begun after the 70 years of exile is not the end of their spiritual exile, okay? Because this was the, 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 hope, the prophets, when they come in and they declare, hey, disaster is coming upon you for your sin, judgment, and then they promise all this glorious restoration, right? That's what the, the joyful parts of the prophets, when you're reading the second half of Isaiah, and, you know, Jeremiah is promising the new covenant and all of these other things that entail with it. Well, for the people, when they thought, oh, well, the 70 years is over. All this is going to come true now, right? So that's kind of what's in the back of their minds as they go back into the land. So what Ezra and Nehemiah are showing is that the 70 years of exile is not the end of their spiritual exile, okay? A greater restoration, a restoration not just to the land of the temple and of Jerusalem is coming. The sad state of the people, the land, the temple, and the city, even after Nehemiah and Ezra's work, should give evidence that the work promised by God has not been completed. So it's just begun, but it's not done, right? And that's what we'll see as we get to the end of the book. There's still work to be done, okay? So we're just going to walk through these books. Uh, I kind of have a a rough outline for you. Uh, You can kind of follow along, and then we'll just be looking at different passages and jumping around a little bit, okay? So the first six chapters... Uh, chapters 1 through 6, are before Ezra's on the scene. Okay, so this is almost a summary that Ezra is writing for us up to the point that he, that he comes into the land. So chapters 1 through 6 are from the decree of Cyrus, which was uh, in 537, 530, 
8 BC, uh, from that time to when Ezra comes to the land under the decree of Artaxerxes, okay? And so this is about an 80-year period where the Jews are back in the land, and, and Ezra's trying to get us kind of caught up to when he comes into the scene. So the first three chapters deal with this decree of Cyrus and the building of the temple, okay? Now, before we get into this, you'll recall last time when we, we spent a lot of time looking at the 70 weeks of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Um, but the whole point of that was that Daniel had read in the prophet Jeremiah and had understood, hey, the 70 years of our exile are about to come to an end. And so then while Daniel is back in uh, Babylon, Cyrus decrees that the Jews can go back to the land. So if you look at Ezra 1, verses, verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel." He is the God who is in Jerusalem, okay? Now, this is, this is important, right? Because this is a direct fulfillment, one, of Isaiah's prophecy where he directly named Cyrus, and then of Jeremiah's prophecy as well, okay? So this is fulfillment of Jeremiah 25, 12, where the Lord says, Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. That's exactly what ha- happened in Daniel, Remember when Belshazzar has the hand written on the wall? That very night, the kingdom is taken from him, and they are are run over by the Medes and the Persians. Jeremiah 29.10, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my my promise and bring you back to this place. Okay, so Ezra and Nehemiah are fulfilling this promise. And then Isaiah 44 Uh, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So Isaiah is making that promise in the 700s. Now we're 150 some odd years later. And here this is being fulfilled just as the Lord had said. Well, probably more like 200 years. My math is really bad. That's why I'm a pastor because I can't do math. Okay, and then do this. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter four. We were in this passage earlier uh, this morning, right? But I want to look at something else. Um, This is the Lord being faithful to his covenant promise. Uh, Not only the exile, but also the restoration. Okay, so Deuteronomy four, verse 26. The Lord says, I call heaven and earth to witness. Well, this is Moses speaking, right? I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation, And after all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Okay, so again, uh, driving home the point that this is a fulfillment of the Lord being faithful to his covenant promise. And even think about what he's saying there in, in Deuteronomy 4. 
where you're going to come back few in number, right? We're going to see like 42,000 people come back in the first return. Well, you think about the size of the nation at the time that they were destroyed. That's a pretty small group of people, right? 42,000 people to go inhabit a nation, not much, right? And then you think about when he says, <clears throat> you, you're, you're going you're gonna to return to the Lord your God. And the, the other thing that I think is interesting to see in the life of the nation of Israel after this point is that they're not polytheistic anymore, right? They are committed to the worship of Yahweh in the temple. They're not creating idols anymore. That, that's been broken in them in many ways. And so their hearts have been changed in many, in many ways, uh, though still there is a, a work to be done, of course, okay? So Ezra 1 through 3 is interesting because as we see this return that is described here, it's like another exodus, Remember when uh, the Jews left Egypt, they were given, uh, or they, were, they, they plundered the Egyptians, right? Well, here, kind of the same thing happens again. They go out with great wealth. So look like at verse four, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So the Lord is providing through this pagan nation to have his house rebuilt. See verse eight as well, okay? And then we get to chapter two and we see this list of people who are returning to the land. And this is going to be reiterated in Nehemiah chapter seven when Nehemiah is going to consult this list, okay? And this is one of those things, again, where we, we read all these names of, insig- well, not insignificant, in, uh, detached from any reality for us. They're just names. They don't mean anything to us necessarily um, because we don't know who the sons of Zetu are and the I mean, personal connection, but there's an importance to this, all right? Because what it's doing is that it is, it is this list is, is serving to connect the returning exiles who lived with their, who, whose ancestors lived in the land prior to the exile, right? They're saying, you do have a place and a purpose here. This is your land to return to that the Lord had, had promised to them, okay? So they needed to know uh, that what the Lord had started in the past, he was continuing with them, all right? Uh, you remember all those in, in like Numbers and places like that where there's all these land divisions to this tribe gets this land and all this and that? Uh, and then also you remember with like the, the Jubilee years where all the land goes back to the families that originally had been sold or whatever? Uh, that's important, Right? So these people have a specific place, a specific land, and these returning uh, exiles, some who had never even seen the promised land, needed to know that they had a place here. Okay? We see also in chapter 1, verse 5, uh, that these who are going back to the land are the ones who the Spirit of God has stirred up. Right? This is the faithful remnant. They're believing the promises of God, obeying and going, going back. Paul House said, the remnant consisted of those who hear the call to go back to the covenant land. Remnant persons have the faith to attempt to do God's will against what seems to be impossible odds. God's remnant bases their lives on the standards revealed in the law and the hope and rebuke offered in the prophet. So if you think about what he's saying there in, in the insurmountable odds, well, as they get back to the land, they're going to face a lot of obstacles. But yet again, they believe what God has said, and, and so they are faithful to obey. Okay, chapter 3, jump ahead to there. And this shows us what the Jews do when they get back to the land. First thing they do is, verse 2, they begin to uh, reinstate the sacrifices. They, they build an altar to do this. 
uh, verse 3, they observe the Feast of Booths as it was written, and then they begin to lay the foundation of the temple. This is what they're going back to do. Uh, you know, it doesn't say the first thing they do is build their houses. The first thing that's recorded is they build a place of worship, right? Because who has brought them back to the land? And then notice verse 11, the people are singing, and they sang a song responsibly praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel, right? They're a testimony to that fact. Their being in the land, even it decimated as it is, is a testament to the fact that the steadfast love of the Lord continues to them, right? And so it is right for them to sing praise to the Lord for that. Then we get to chapter four, and so they've begun the building process of the temple, and now opposition uh, to the temple rebuilding project comes on. And first of all, in verse 2, you see that it comes from uh, insincere people wanting to help. Right? And I put that in air quotes, to help. Uh, they don't really want to help. They want to uh, make the project more difficult. Verse 7, it comes through some political maneuvering. Um, what happens is that their enemies... These who have risen up against them, they send letters to the king and they misrepresent the motives of the Jews in rebuilding the temple. And so they say, hey, the work should stop. These guys are, uh, they are going to revolt against you through the building of this temple. And so in verse 24 of chapter four, this leads to a stop order being placed and work on the temple ceases, okay? And so this is where in chapter five, you see that the... Um, and this is where, well, Ezra and Nehemiah are both really interesting because they have these whole letters recorded for us, right? So you can see this is what these guys sent. This is how the king responded. Later on, we'll see more letters are sent. <clears throat> but in chapter five, here comes Haggai and Zechariah and their ministry of encouraging the people to build the temple. So consider these words from, from Haggai, chapter one, verse seven. Uh, Haggai said this, he said, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Because this period stopped for uh, about 10 years, right? So there's a period of 10 years where the temple's not being built. During this time, the people are living in their, their houses and things like that, and the work on the temple has stopped. So Haggai comes along and encourages them, hey, begin rebuilding. Haggai chapter 2 verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So here, Haggai is, is uh, prophesying, encouraging them to rebuild the temple. Why? Why is the glory of this house going to be greater? This is ultimately where Jesus' ministry uh, will be done. There's a, a greater glory that will come from this. Zechariah chapter 1, here, uh, the prophet Zechariah saying, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So these prophets are encouraging the people to continue the work. So what happens is that the people respond and they, they begin the work again. And so there's questions in verse three that come from the governor of the land and they come to the, the Jews who are building the temple and they say, hey, who gave you, who gave you permission to do this? And so the people uh, ask the king to search the records and see that Cyrus gave them permission. So look at verse 13, you'll see they say that, hey, appeal to the king, Cyrus gave a decree that we should be able to do this. So the king, uh, they, they do a search. 
He finds the decree and then orders in chapter 6, verse 7, that the work should not be stopped, right? And then not only that, look at verses 8 and 9. They're provided with the things they need to build the house and to offer sacrifices. So again, uh, the Lord is providing for this work to be completed. So verse 7, let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the, elder of the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Okay, so that gets us up to, the, to chapter 7, to the ministry of Ezra. So this is the first 80 years or so where the Jews are back in the land, and this is what has happened. Okay, now between chapter 6 and chapter 7, you have a time gap of about 58 years. And in this time frame would be the story of Esther, okay? Um, so this time gap happens. In chapter 7, we are introduced to Ezra, who he was and what he was sent to do. Now, uh, when Ezra comes back onto the scene, you know, okay, you think 80 years have now passed since the, the Jews have come back into the land, the moral condition of the nation is not real great. Even though they're back in the promised land, there, there, there are some problems that has, has, been, has arisen, okay? So the temple has been rebuilt, but what happens now is the people need to be taught the law. And as Pastor Jess stole my thunder this morning by going to Ezra chapter 7, right? So we, we, we won't spend a ton of time here. But bringing out who Ezra was, the kind of godly man, the godly scribe that he was, okay? Malachi, he also is ministering during this time. A ministering to a discouraged people, right? People that are asking again, hey, we're restored to the land. Where's the promised kingdom? Why has this restoration not been realized as all the other prophets had said that it would be, okay? So Ezra, a godly man, verse six, as it says, he was skilled in the law of Moses. And then verse 10, he was faithfully committed to doing and teaching all that God had revealed in the law. And as we're gonna see here in a minute, that some, when, you're, when you're committed to the word of God, right, there's a boldness that comes when difficult issues arise, like the issue of intermarriage, as we're going to get to in, in just a few chapters. But what is Ezra dependent upon? He trusts the word of God, right? I, that's what it says. Therefore, we're going to obey it, right? And we're going we're gonna to enforce it, okay? Uh, Ezra is sent by Artaxerxes. If you look at verses eight and, 18 and 19, He's sent along with other men who would serve at the temple. So Levites, uh, singers, gatekeepers, temple, temple servants, and they're sent back to Jerusalem. Uh, verses 18 and 19, he's sent with great treasures to fill the house with. So the house has been built, but now he says, uh, I think it's in verses 18 and 19, um, that they're, they're going back to beautify the house of Israel or the, the temple with, with these things. Chapter 8 then records for us some of those who went back with Ezra. And then also Ezra, in, the, in looking who's coming with him, he's finding, hey, there's not enough Levites. Um, so he gathers more of them with him. And then also in chapter 8, uh, he, there's a, a prayer where, where they're going back. You think about they have all this wealth and treasure with them, and there's a good chance that they could be a, a good target for some marauding bands. And so they pray and ask the Lord to protect them because he said, I didn't ask the king for, for, an, for soldiers or an army to go with me. And so we prayed to the Lord and he protected us. So that's what happens in chapter eight. Also, we see in chapter eight that there are the priests who are the ones that are responsible for guarding uh, these valuables and they are delivered to, to the temple. So then we get to chapter nine and chapter 10, and this is really uh, one unit here. And this is Ezra and the problem of intermarriage. So 
he gets back to the land, and the first thing that, that comes up is this problem of intermarriage. So look at verse 2, chapter 9. For they have taken, so this is the Jews, right? For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves, being daughters of the land, and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, in, and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. Okay. So was this a, a racism problem? Were they racists? Right? Like, oh, we, can't, we want a pure breed. No, that's not the problem. What, is, what has kind of been the downfall of the nation of Israel in their entire history? Disobedience, following other people's religions, right? When you go and you, you're going to marry in with these others, yeah, your wives are going to lead you astray to false gods and their sons will lead you astray to worship these false gods. So remember all the way back, the very beginning of, of Israel being commanded to go in the land, what does the Lord say? Wipe them all out. Right? The iniquity of the Amorites has been filled up. They are to be destroyed right? because they will be a snare to you. And that's what happens ultimately because they don't drive them out as they should. Uh, they, they are a snare to them. So they're back in the land. And you think about this time uh, in other, if you go back to like, uh, what is it, 1 Kings? No, it'll be 2 Kings. 1 Kings 17, I think, right? That's where Israel is carried off into captivity. Uh, the, the Jews are carried out of the land, but foreigners are brought in, right? And they're repopulating the land. And so now the land is filled again with these other people, and this is who they are intermarrying with, okay? So this is the problem, and then we get to Ezra's prayer of confession. Look at verses 13 and 14. Um, so Ezra is responding to this situation, recognizing the gravity of it, and he says this, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? Okay, a couple of things to notice there. One, Ezra understands the reason the people have been exiled. He understands the reason they've just been under the judgment they have been, right? It is, it is their sin, their disobedience, this very sin of, of intermarriage, okay? Uh, he understands how great their sin is, right? That phrase where he says, you have punished us less than we deserve. And that, that's really a, a marvelous phrase because we could look at it and we go, wow, that seems really harsh of the Lord to wipe them out and to just carry them off. And he's saying, no, this is less than what we, what we deserve. Um, then thirdly, notice that Ezra is saying, we're back doing the exact same things that got us into this problem to start with, right? And so he is, he is confessing and acknowledging that the people as a whole are not obeying the Lord from the heart. So in chapter 10, we see a, a response from the people where they, uh, they, they, Ezra, well, I find it really interesting in verse one that while Ezra is doing this, he's praying and weeping, he, he, the people see him doing this and they're moved to repentance, right? So it says verse one of chapter 10, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel for the, whole, for the people wept bitterly, Right? And then the, the people stand up in verse 2. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, of Elam, addressed Ezra. 
We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So the people respond in this way they, and then they commit. All right, we're going to do this. We're going to put out our, our foreign wives that we've married. And that is a whole other subject that we're not even going to get into tonight because that'd be a whole other one. Why, why did the Lord tell them to divorce their wives? Um, so we'll make, maybe we'll make that a podcast or something like that at some point. Um, but they do this. They respond in obedience. All of them obey except for just a couple. You see chapter 10, verse 15. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashael, and Jehazai, the son of Tikva, opposed this. And Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. So you see a near universal response from the nation of Israel that they have sinned and they respond in obedience. Okay, So that is the end of the book of Ezra. And then there's a, when you see the last few verses, your Bible might have a heading, those guilty of intermarriage. This is the people that were, were found guilty in this way. Okay. So then this leads us to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah uh, picks up in a different place from where, where Ezra is. And really Nehemiah's story begins with the poor condition of the city. Right? So if Ezra is concerned with the poor condition of the temple and the poor condition of the people in many ways, Nehemiah begins with the poor condition of the city itself and the city's walls. Okay? So Nehemiah uh, is now at this point, the Jews have been back in the land for almost 100 years. Uh, Nehemiah is, is in Persia, in Susa, which is the same place as Esther would have been. Um, and he is serving in the king's court. We see chapter 1, verse 3, he hears about uh, the, the distressed state of the city, and he is mourning over that fact. Uh, he, the, the problem is, is that the, well, walls were needed for protection, right? So if you're Jews now living in a land filled with other people who don't really like you, you kind of need a way to protect yourself. And so he realizes that these people are uh, particularly vulnerable. And so Nehemiah responds to this with another prayer of confession. So verse 4, we hear this wonderful model for us where he is confessing uh, sin, uh, the people's sin, again acknowledging the Lord is faithful to his covenant promises in judgment and in restoration, and that the, the things that the nation of Israel has experienced are for their faithlessness. To the covenant, okay? Um, at the same time in this prayer, he's also recognizing the Lord will never fully abandon his people, right? He is still faithful to his, to his covenant, okay? So this small believing remnant that is returned to the land, they are evidence, again, of this fact of the Lord's, of the Lord's faithfulness, okay? So Nehemiah goes before the king, and he gets permission from the king to go back to the land to investigate the situation and to begin this rebuilding project. Um, he goes with another uh, group of exiles. And it's interesting, there were how many exiles from the land? Do you remember? When, when the people of Israel were deported from the land, do you remember how many there were? It's either one, two, or three. There's three, three exiles or three deportations. Uh, and then how many returns are there? It, it matches. There's three, right? So it's kind of interesting, right? You have three deportations and then three returns because there is the, the first one under uh, the, uh, 
that's recorded at the beginning of Ezra. Can't remember the name of the priest that they go back with. Then the return with Ezra, and then the return with with Nehemiah. So just an interesting uh, correlation there. Okay, so uh, Nehemiah gets permission. He goes back. The king here again provides everything that they need. So just as Cyrus provided and Artaxerxes provided, so here they're providing for them again to go back and rebuild the walls of the city. And then here in chapter two, you're introduced in verse. Uh, starting kind of in verse 9 and verse 10, uh, opposition again arising. So just as it arose with the temple, now it arises with the wall building project, okay? Uh, Chapter 3, we see this work begins in earnest as it records for us who it is that is building and where it is they are building, uh, what part of the wall they're working on, what part of the gate they are are working on, okay? So that happens in chapter three. Then we get to chapters four through six, and again, we have opposition to Nehemiah and the work of rebuilding the walls, okay? Um, Now, in in these chapters, we see opposition comes from without. We'll see in Sanballat and Tobiah, but also from from within, okay? Uh, So Sanballat and Tobiah, these are the two guys that you're introduced first to in, uh, I think, in chapter two, uh, yep, chapter 2, verse 10, Sanballat and Tobiah. Don't name your children after them. They're not good guys. Uh, they've scoffed at, at Nehemiah and the work that they're doing. They're saying things like, hey, if a fox walks up on the wall, it'll fall down because your work's so shoddy, uh, trying to taunt them and disrupt the work. It says in chapter 4, verse 7 through 8, they're trying to disrupt the work to keep the breaches in the wall from being closed off, right? They, they, they don't want the city being walled off. So what happens is, is there's physical opposition, right? So chapter 4, verse 13, we see that they start po- posting guards. Nehemiah gives orders, hey, we're all going to fight with swords on our, our side. There's going to be guys that are protecting us. We'll sound a horn if they come attack us at one point. We'll all rally there and fight together, okay? So this is a, this is a, a building project in a war zone, right? If you've ever thought about that, that's what they are, they are doing, Okay. In chapter 5, so, well, chapter 4 is describing opposition from the outside. Chapter 5 is kind of describing opposition from within, and this is the, the state of the Jews. So chapter 5 is showing us the Jews oppressing one another. So verse 2, the rich are oppressing the poor, and the poor have no food to eat. This is a problem, right? This isn't the way that they are supposed to be uh, living. Uh, verse 3, others have mortgaged their property because of a famine, and others, in verse 4, have had to borrow money to pay their taxes. So this is a, a destitute people. They're not treating one another as the law would have them to be treating. So what happens is Nehemiah hears this, and he brings charges against the Jewish nobles and officials. And what seems to have happened here is that the Jews who were in command were either one exacting interest from one another in a wrong way, or they were selling their relatives off uh, to, to others, right? They're, they're taking advantage of the poor Jews by selling them off to, to the Gentiles. And what's happening here, remember uh, in Ruth, we had that account of the Levirate marriage and the kinsman redeemer. Well, the whole point of that was to protect people from being wiped out by poverty, right? And so here they're like, oh no, let's just wipe these people out. Instead of stepping in to redeem this poor brother by paying off his bill or, or, buy, or redeeming his line, they're like, no, we'll just sell him off to the Gentiles. Well, this has created quite a, quite a conundrum. So this is where Nehemiah steps in and he helps to do this. Now, Nehemiah has an official position, 
right? He's, the, he's a governor over this land. And what he does is he responds and he, he also shows, hey, this is how I've chosen to live among you, right? I'm not exacting uh, high interest from you, uh, exacting high taxes. I'm giving you uh, what I've been, what I've been given. Okay, so the people respond appropriately uh, again to to uh, the this confrontation, if we want to put it that way. And then chapter six, we see another uh, issue of opposition arise as there is this conspiracy made against uh, to try and and kill Nehemiah, uh, and this is a plot made by Sanballat and Tobiah, and he's told, hey. Some guy wants to meet you over here late at night in the temple. And he's like, oh, no, that's not the thing that I should do. I, rec- I realize that this is a, a conspiracy to, kill my li- to, to take my life. Okay? So at the end of chapter 6, we see that the work is completed and it's finished in a mere 52 days. Right? So it's really a, a very quick turnaround, so much so that even the inhabitants of the land recognize they've done this by the hand of the Lord. You see that in chapter 6, verse 16. Okay? Now, the walls, again, are important, not only for physical protection for the people, but again, it's, it's also spiritual protection in a way, as it's going to help protect the people from the corrupting pagan influences. And we'll see this at the end of the book as well, as we're going to have to literally lock out some of the people uh, to keep uh, the Jews from sinning on the Sabbath, as they were wont to do. Okay, So this leads us to the last five chapters here. And I just couldn't think of a catchy title or any, because uh, I'm not good at that. So I just told you what each chapter says in short, in a whole sentence, right? So the returns exiles in chapter 7, hear the word in chapter 8, confess their sins in chapter 9, renew the covenant in chapter 10, inhabit Jerusalem, dedicate the wall, and perform the service in the temple. Okay, so chapter 7 has Nehemiah again consulting the genealogy of those who have returned to the land. So this takes us back to Ezra chapter 2. Um, and Connie is going to like tell us all the details about these two genealogies, right? And all the differences and similarities? Or not. Or not. Okay, that's your assignment for next time, right? This would be up your alley, right? Yeah, it's, it's really Yeah, it's a little tedious. Okay, all right. They, the, you're, okay, good. I'm glad that you found it difficult because I looked at it and I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. We can just, we can get the idea of what's going on here. <clears throat> um, it is, there are some questions as to why Nehemiah is consulting this genealogy at this point, why it's placed in the book in this way. Um, one suggestion that I, I came across this week is that this uh, genealogy is consulted here to remind the people that the work is not yet done. Right? The wall is completed, but as we're going to see in chapter 11, the people are in the towns and the city is not yet inhabited. And so there, maybe there's a... a, a that's the next move that needs to be made. And so maybe there's some, uh, something with that, why he's consulting it at this point. But either way, Nehemiah consults this, this genealogy. Chapter 8, though, before we get to this rehabilitation of the, the city of Jerusalem itself, there's, again, spiritual work that needs to be done. And this is where we see Ezra and Nehemiah overlap. So if we think about what chapter 7 of Ezra said about Ezra, in chapter 8, now we see him, him doing that, okay? So in chapter, as, uh, chapter 8, all the people gather together to be taught, and this really looks a lot like a church service in many ways. I think there's a platform that's built. Uh, Ezra's up on it. There's singing. There's preaching. Um, what Ezra does is he teaches them the law. 
Uh, he says in chapter 8 and verse 8, he, he teaches it and explains what it means. So when we talk about like expository preaching, that's what you're trying to do, right? You're explaining it. That's why we don't just read it. There's, there's some explanation that is to, to come with it. So they, he explains it so they understand what they are hearing. And then you look at verses, eight, or verses 9 through 12. And here we see that, that, that uh, in response to the preaching of God's word, a spirit-filled people respond to that, right? So look at verses 9 through 12. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Right? So here they're, they're, they're broken by what they've heard. Right? This is kind of like when Josiah finds the law. Remember that story? He finds the book of the law. He hears it and he tears his clothes because he recognizes, boy, great is the judgment of the Lord upon us because we've not kept all the words of this law. So here again, the people respond in a similar way. And then we get to chapter 9. And again, we have both Ezra and Nehemiah have these beautiful prayers of confession. Uh, I love good prayers of confession like this that model for us how to confess our sins to the Lord and what, what they're doing. Um, that's why I love old historic prayers by faithful people and reading those things like that. But in chapter 9, look at verse, um, verse 30. Here, Ezra is praying. They're saying, or the people are praying, saying, many years you bore with them, Warned them by your spirit through the prophets. So here they're recounting the Lord's faithfulness to the nation, what he's done to them. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Right? All these prayers of confession are all doing the same thing. They're saying, God, you're right, you're just, right? And you're merciful to us who are not, merc- who are not deserving of it. Right? They're, they're confessing who God is and what he has done. Okay? Um, then what we see is that people are responding in obedience by renewing the covenant, okay? So uh, this happens, we see it like uh, the end of chapter 9, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests, okay? This was something that the nation of Israel was to do each generation. This was to be a regular practice that they would hear the word of God and they would agree to do it, right? So you think uh, all the way back to the beginning, Exodus chapter 19, the Lord speaks out of the mountain. He gives them the law. And what do the people respond? All that you have said, we will do, right? And then you see this again at the end of Deuteronomy is there the second giving of the law and they're ready to go into the land. And they, again, they are given the covenant and they respond, all that you have said, we will do. Well, 
They didn't do that as a nation, right? And they strayed from that. That's why they came under judgment. So here again, they respond in obedience and they seal their names to uh, this, this document. So chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, look at there. The rest of the people, the, prince, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. You think back too, to, to Deuteronomy when they are told, when you cross the land, you're going to go to the two mountains and you're going to, one, half, the, half the tribes are going to be on one mountain, half are going to be on the other, and you're going to yell back and forth the blessings and the cursings of the covenant. And this here again is what they're saying. All of the blessings, the cursings, we are taking upon ourselves in an oath to obey the Lord's commands. Okay, so they've, they've renewed the covenant, confessed their sin. This is great spiritual work that is done. So this leads to chapter 11 and this last kind of uh, physical project, so to speak. Uh, what happens here is that, again, the city is largely uninhabited. The walls have been re- rebuilt, but it says that, that only the leaders are the ones who are living in the city. So what they do is they cast lots and they say they take 10% of the people who are living in the towns outside the city and they bring them in to now inhabit the city. And this, this is because if you think about all the, what the prophets are writing about the Lord's promise for Zion, for his city, for his temple, right? It's not just the temple, but it's the whole city, right? Jerusalem, this is the, the city where I have chosen to make my name dwell, right? So there's an importance that it too is inhabited, okay? And so not just the temple rebuilt, but the city is re-inhabited as well. And that's why like in the, the kingdom, right? What is it? It's the new Jerusalem that is coming down out of heaven, okay? Chapter 12, we see that there is provision uh, provided for the Lord's house as priests and Levites serve in the temple. And so we have a, a large list of names again and what they're doing, especially verses 1 through 26. And then the end of that chapter, we see again their, their service in the temple. Okay? So this leads us to the last chapter, uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. And here we're just closing with the reality that the restoration of the heart is not yet completed and is an ongoing work. All right, so for all the, the good responses, for all the obedience that has happened, it's not uh, a completed and final work, right? So a couple of things that happen uh, in chapter 13. Uh, Nehemiah goes back to Persia for a time, and then he comes back. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, he finds a number of issues that have gone astray. So first of all, a priest allowed a relative to live in the temple. Uh, you see that in verse 4. So he, a room where stuff was supposed to be stored for the care of the temple, uh, he's turned it into living quarters for this guy. That's not ha- what, what's supposed to be happening, right? Uh, verse 10, Nehemiah comes back and finds that the Levites haven't been provided for. Because remember, the Levites, they weren't living off the land. They were living off of the offerings of the people. And so uh, if the Levites aren't being provided for, well, then they got to go provide for themselves some other way. So 
the service in the temple isn't able to happen as it should. Okay, uh, Verse 15, people are working on the Sabbath and they're buying and selling goods from foreigners who are coming into the city on that day. Okay, And then in verse 23, the issue of marrying foreign wives has come up again. Well, boy, didn't we fix this already? Well, what it shows is apart from the transformation of the heart by the Spirit of God, that circumcision of the heart that needs to happen, uh, these issues will continue to crop up, okay? So Nehemiah works to correct these things. Verse 8, he kicks out Tobiah from living in the temple. Verse 13, he provides for the Levites. Uh, Verse 19, he locks the gates of the city so that the foreigners can't come back into the city and sell their goods on the Sabbath. And then my favorite in verse 24, uh, he beats up the guys who are giving their daughters to the inhabitants of the land in marriage, right? So one of the more funnier verses in the Bible when he says, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and made them take an oath that they would not in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for yourselves. So that's a, that's a, it's a joke, right? But that's good biblical counseling right there, right? I beat them and cursed them, pulled their hair out. That'll, that'll pr- provoke some change. Well, yeah, and also get you taken to jail. So uh, that's where the Bible is. Uh, it's descriptive sometimes, not always prescriptive, right? This is not how we should always be handling situations in the church, but it's in there. And so I always get a chuckle when I read that verse, okay? So chapter 13, though, this is where the book closes, and, and it closes kind of on a dour note, right? Here, 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 all these great things have done, but yet the city's not perfect. The people are not perfect by any means, right? All these issues keep coming up. Uh, and you could even say maybe the leaders aren't perfect, right? Because they're running around beating up the people that, that aren't obeying. Like, oh, you know, there's, there's some problems. Well, this is all, what is this supposed to do? point us to the fact that this work is not ultimately yet finally done. And that's where we'll go next week when we get to Chronicles. We will see, uh, the whole point I think is that it's pointing us forward to a Davidic king who will come and he is the one who will ultimately set it right. He's the one that will bring the spirit of God that actually enables this kind of heart transformation that's needed for true and lasting obedience.